0: In the Old Testament, in the strange and wild and holy book known as Ecclesiastes, there's a saying. It says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. I mean, it's such a strange and alien sentiment that one wonders... Did I hear that right? It is better to go to a funeral than to a party. Better to go to the house of mourning than to the social gathering afterwards. Yes, it is. How can this be? Well, the text in Ecclesiastes tells us it continues. For death, it says, is the destiny of everyone, and the living should take it to heart. Death, human mortality, is the central reality, the all-pervasive, mocking reality, the dominant fact, the decisive thing about human existence. And you're not going to learn that at a party. we are practiced at suppressing this at averting our eyes from it at pretending there's a sort of mass human conspiracy of pretending that the planet is really not a global dust and bones factory so we keep busy we look the other way perpetually. Thus, the house of mourning is needed. It performs a service. To leave a funeral home the same as you went into it is a tragic thing. It's like being a Saul who always arrives at Damascus unmolested. It is to miss something plain and obvious and stark. Right? There's a kind of sobriety in the funeral home and a, and a realism there. There's a kind of wisdom that can only be attained there. And it is this reality, on display in every casket, that Jesus Christ came to address. He was not chewing around the edges of our plight. He did not come... To give us some sort of moral uplifting advice. He comes to deal with the heart of the human predicament. He is not tweaking things. He comes to destroy death itself. The New Testament tells us this to abolish it, to bring life, immortality into the light. And in 1 Corinthians 15, which is our text this morning, the Apostle Paul there, he does not shrink from the fact that Christianity rises and falls with the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Deny that. You can have lots of things. You don't have the Christian faith. If the resurrection is false, the whole fabric of our faith unravels. If Jesus is not raised, Paul says, it's not just that we're wrong. He says we're the most pitiable of men. (coughs) Yet, if it is true, and Paul's going to argue vigorously that it is, then there is joyful, certain, solid hope for the world. If it is not true, the cemetery grinds on. This morning... We're going to look at those first eight verses which were read. And we'll have to make two main points. The gospel and the witnesses. There's a little outline on the back inside page of your bulletin. So the gospel and the witnesses. First the gospel. Gospel means good news. The good news about what God has done in Jesus. And it's spoken here as past, present, and future. The gospel in the past is spoken of as that which you have received. The Corinthian church had received the gospel. It's the defining event in their past. It's the reason for the church's existence, and it's the ground upon which Paul appeals to us now, or to them now. Thus, the gospel is a present reality. Paul calls it the gospel in which you stand. Right now, in this present moment, we stand in and by and through this gospel of free grace, this good news of Jesus, and by nothing else. Certainly not by our own deeds. And the gospel is not only past, remembered, present, standing in it, but it's also future. In verse 2, Paul says that the gospel is that by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. The gospel will be our salvation in the future if we cling to it. This gospel, this news of the resurrection, Paul says in verse 3, is of first importance. The late Richard John Newhouse, who founded a very famous journal called First Things, famously said, the first thing to be said about politics is that politics is not the first thing but take politics out of that sentence and put anything else in there except the gospel. And the sentence still holds. The gospel is the first thing. It's the thing of prime importance. And the content of this gospel, which is simple and plain, is unpacked for us beginning in verse 3. The gospel of supreme importance is first and foremost the fact that Christ died For our sins. The significance of that little word for is that Jesus died as our substitute, in our place, bearing our punishment. And this death, Paul says, was according to the scriptures, promised, pointed to in the Old Testament, which spoke of a suffering Messiah. The next phrase is that he was buried. The burial serves to confirm the reality of the death. Jesus did not just swoon on the cross or appear to die. He really died. And a real corpse was laid in a real grave. He died for our sins. He was buried. And finally, Christ is risen. This is, as we've said, the hinge. And it is this point that Paul's emphasizing here. The text says he was raised on the third day. Again, in reference to a number of Old Testament texts which point to a deliverance or salvation coming on the third day. Again, raised on the third day, then in accordance with the scriptures. That's it. Paul has just given us the inner content of the gospel, the irreducible core of it, the non negotiable stuff, and it's simple. And he says to the church, don't get bored with this. This is what you received. This is how you stand. And this is that by which you will be saved. This gospel. And that brings us to the second point I want to look at this morning. That's the witnesses. The witnesses. The risen Christ was seen. He was seen in verse 5 by Cephas. That's the Aramaic name for Peter. Peter. Do you know what this means? It means that the, the tradition or the testimony to the resurrection stems from the Jerusalem church and its leader, Peter, who saw the risen Jesus with his own eyes. Now, I want you to note this. Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, this text, in the early 50s. Not the 1950s, the 50s, like 51 A.D., 52 A.D. But he said he's received these traditions from the Jerusalem church. right? The, the, The traditions he's received go back at least into the 40s. And beyond that, they stem from the Jerusalem church and Peter in the 30s. There is no gap between the resurrection and the witnesses. There's a sort of bizarre modern idea out there that the new testament was written 75 85 95 115 years after the event four generations later and the stories were fabricated we know when paul wrote 1 corinthians 50 early 50s we know he's drawing on traditions from at least the 40s the witnesses are there from the beginning and this rash coward peter turns into the fearless leader and preacher head of the apostolic church he was seen by peter peter by the way being someone paul personally knows and he was seen the end of verse 5 says by the 12 the other the rest of the college of the apostles and the gospels record a number of appearances to the 12 there's an interesting one in luke 24 Jesus appears, the risen Jesus, appears to the twelve, and the text tells us that there were many others present. Paul doesn't say which appearance to the twelve this is, but his point is simple. In addition to Peter, he appeared to all twelve of the apostles. But note that in at least one instance, there were not a few, but many other people with the twelve. So he's beginning to gather this great cloud of witnesses. And then we get this fascinating piece of information in verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at one time. Now, this is staggering. Among other things, it tells us there were probably a number of appearances that we don't even know about. This appearance is not recorded in the Gospels. But Paul knows about it. And it's well known in the church. And notice, he says, that this appearance to over 500 occurred at once. At once. At one time, the risen Jesus appeared to a crowd two and a half times or so, larger than the crowd assembled here this morning. Now, a single person, or a few maybe, can have a vision or something and be mistaken. But for 500 people simultaneously to claim to have seen the Lord. Now, these people are not committed, right? They're walking around in their lives. This is virtually irrefutable evidence. You have two choices here Paul's lying. Or there was some sort of synchronized mass delusion. So, we have not only Peter. We have not only the twelve. We have not only the many others who were with the twelve on at least one occasion. We have not only the women whom Paul doesn't mention here but in addition to that group of at least 15 or 20 or a few dozen people, we have not 500. Notice, not 500, but Paul says over 500 additional witnesses. And just to drive the point home that Paul and the early church knew these 500 people, notice this little piece of crucial biographical detail in the middle of verse 6, most of whom he says, are still alive. right?" That's because Paul's writing in 50 A.D., not 95 A.D. Most of whom are still alive, though some, Paul says, some have fallen asleep. Right. This is Paul saying, look, Jesus appeared to 500 people, and I know roughly what percentage of them are still living, the majority, and what percentage of the minority have died. So most of these 500 people are alive and known to the broader church. You can go talk to them, Paul is saying. Some have died. The greater part remain. Go interview them. If you doubt the bodily resurrection, go ask. The information is public. It's firsthand eyewitness testimony, and it's not three people in a corner somewhere. But he's not done. In verse 8, he says, after that. Now, notice this. Paul not only knows about these appearances, as everybody in early Christianity would have known about these appearances. He, He not only knows about the appearances, he knows about their sequence. First, Peter. Then, the 12. After that, the 500. After that, James. Now, this James... He's an important witness, because he's the Lord's half-brother. He grew up in the same house as Jesus of Nazareth. He later becomes a key figure in the Jerusalem church. But you know what else we know about him? That during Jesus' earthly ministry, he did not believe in Jesus. He thought his brother was a little strange. So here's a man who was inclined against Jesus who lived in the same house as Jesus and later becomes a witness to the resurrection. The second half of verse 7 says, then, again the sequence, then to all the apostles. This is a different group than the twelve. Sometimes apostles means the twelve. Sometimes in the New Testament it just means it's a broader term, meaning those commissioned to preach the gospel. So Paul Has piled up some 600 plus witnesses here, and that's a conservative number to this point. He's done it without artifice or pretension. He's done it in just a couple of verses. He's done it really without even elaborating on it much. But there's one more witness to be named, last but not least, and it's Paul himself. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now here Paul is referring to his Damascus Road experience where he saw the risen Christ. This event, by the way, is referred to five times in scripture. So Paul had many chances over the years to recant his story, right, to sort of psychologize his story away. But he doesn't do any of that. And he, Paul, finally, like many on this list, is martyred for his testimony to the risen Christ. It's important to get that. A lot of these witnesses were killed for their testimony. So in closing, I want to say a word about this last witness, Paul. Since he's the one who's providing this catalog. right? This really astonishing catalog. Now, Paul is an undeniably historical figure. There is, as far as I know, nobody on the planet who questions Paul's existence, just as there is no credible scholar who questions the existence and crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. So here we have a man who the record shows hated and persecuted Christians and sought to have them killed. He has a conversion encounter with the risen Christ, with witnesses standing by. He records that encounter five times. He's utterly transformed, and he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles and brings the gospel to virtually the whole known world. No Paul, no Europe. And he is eventually, according to we think reliable tradition beheaded in Rome as a martyr for the faith. Now, what do we know about him? A lot. A lot. And what we know, we know from his letters. Even the most critical of scholars, skeptical of scholars, except. You know, some core number of these letters as being legitimately from the hand of Paul himself. And these letters tell us a lot. A lot that's relevant in a witness. What is revealed is that Paul is tested and he's sober, he's gifted, he's brilliant. Outside of Jesus of Nazareth, he's the most brilliant human being in the first century, arguably at least. He's thoroughly sane. He's passionate and humane. He's not perfect. It's pretty clear he's strong willed, he's not without his faults. He'll be the first to tell you that. He's broken and humble, he's judicious. And he's wise. My point is this I believe Paul. I find him entirely credible, even compelling. I mean, all the atheists and skeptics in the world are lighter than a puff of smoke when weighed against his testimony. And not simply his testimony but the testimony of some 600 plus witnesses that this man adduces for us here. These witnesses testify to this joyful, unbelievable truth. Jesus is risen. And it's irrational to deny it. It is sanity to affirm it. You know, in the house of mourning, in the funeral home, We often get cold and really pitiable comfort. People say things. They're well-intentioned, of course, but they're impotent. They amount to wishful thinking. We all know that there's been an irrevocable, bitter loss. There's been a wound that can't be healed by human kindness or sentiment. And while time may, in some respects, heal, you know what it never does? It never restores. For what we want, what we really want, though we have been conditioned to not even hope for it anymore, is we want the person, our loved one in the casket, in their bodily integrity, raised out of death. We don't want to be left with pictures or memories, or wishful thoughts about floating off into the ether somewhere. We want the person in the casket, in their bodily integrity, raised out of death. We want immortality. We want death shattered. We want all things restored in a world without the agony of death. We want embodied glory before the face of God in his love and in his light. And this and nothing else is the promise made and secured by Jesus Christ. This is what Christianity is. And this is why Jesus, unlike any other religious figure or any figure period in history, audaciously calls himself the resurrection and the life. And this is why Jesus when his friend Lazarus dies, could say to Lazarus' sisters who are in mourning, words like this, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you, he asks them, do you believe this? I ask you, do you believe this? This is the good news. It is the astonishing news. It is the uniquely Christian news. And it goes to the heart of your and my predicament as human beings. This is news that moves one from the house of mourning to the house of everlasting feasting. Believe the gospel. It is of first importance. Jesus has been crucified for our sins. He has been buried and raised and seen by many, indeed hundreds, of faithful witnesses. Praise be to God. Amen. Amen.